church. Let's take our hymn books and stand, and we'll start with a couple of hymns this morning. Number 149, I praise him, praise him. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. Psalm 146 to 149. Oh. 
That's the first time in years I've been able to sing in the choir. <laughs> I tried not to project too much to avoid disrupting your worship time, but I did get to hear Amber and the Nelson family choir with the bass of pastor on the other side. So I think I'm going to stand up here for the whole service. Just, to, just some announcements today. We have fellowship meal afterwards, soup and sandwiches. So, Michael, if you didn't bring soup and sandwiches, that's okay. We've got plenty for you and your two compadres, hungry young men. I remember those days. I still eat that way, but I remember those days. And next week in the morning, we have communion. We're going to share the Lord's table. And you do not have to be a member of this church to participate, but you do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two other announcements. On the back table, we have free resources, and I just got straight answers about creation from John MacArthur, and it's a little different take on what you see from the guys like Answers in Genesis and the other folks, so feel free to take it. And a book on my level, The Good Shepherd, with pictures, the thick pages. But downstairs, depending on which entrance you come in, we have a children's bookcase downstairs by the coffee machine. Kids, you can't have the coffee, but the books are there for you to take. You can borrow or just take them home. So glad you guys are here worshiping, and happy birthday to a young lady in almost the front pew. Thank you, Andy, and thanks for getting those resources together, and I do encourage you to consider uh, those as well, they might help a lot, especially in days ahead. And so make use of that. And Andy keeps a lot of stuff on that back table anyway, up to date, some things he didn't even mention. So uh, be sure to look into that. This morning uh, in your bulletin, it is, um, has this week's fighter verse, Romans 12, 1 through 2. And if you want to keep up with that, you can also get... Uh, bookmark that Gail has prepared for us, and that's also on the back table. It keeps up with this week to week, but we also, Linda prints this in the bulletin each week, and so it's just another source for you to be able to keep up <coughs> with a verse for the week. Utilize this. I encourage you to at least read it once or twice and perhaps every day to think about it. Uh, this is a great section in Romans 12, really one of my favorite uh, to, to think, and particularly if you're looking here to um, not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Uh, and that, uh, that's something that needs to occur on a daily basis to renew your mind. You can renew your mind in God's word. Let's take a moment then as we begin our time to worship Christ today. I'm going to give you a time to Privately, prepare your heart to worship Christ. Take a moment to, to pray, confess sin. Ask that God would illuminate your mind through the Holy Spirit to hear and heed what he would have for you today. Um, Christ would speak to his church. And it is through the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit that indeed we will hear and heed his Christ's word for the church today. So take a moment privately where you're at. Let's pray, and then I'll read this passage and pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we come before you truly by your mercy. It is by your mercy that we are gathered together today, united with Jesus Christ our Lord, that indeed we can come before your throne of grace and receive help and mercy in our time of need. We're always in a time of need. There are times in which it is more evident. And I pray that those times would cause us to humbly come before you and to confidently, through Christ, receive what you would provide. I pray, Father, for each one of us that our minds would truly be renewed in the word of Christ. Speak to each one of your sons and daughters as the way they need to hear from you even this day, to have a word of help, to have a word that will satisfy them, provide spiritual sustenance, to strengthen, to give courage, to give conviction, confidence in Christ, Oh, Father, we would want to be your children of great faith and trust in you. And I pray, indeed, that this will come about through your gracious work. I pray for uh, each one as the days ahead, perhaps for many, seem dark and difficult. I pray that the smiling face of your providence would be seen even through the most turbulent storms. May our trust and confidence be in you, and though everything else might be broken away, I pray, Father, it would only redound for in our weakness to find our true strength in you. Father, we desire that which is good. We desire that which is acceptable in your sight. We desire those things that are, have been perfected by you, and I pray that you would even grant it, grant it among your people. May an incredible joy and peace be among your people in regardless of whatever circumstance they might find themselves in. I pray it would overflow, the, the fruit of, of your favor would indeed overflow into the lives of others. I pray that many will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord through the proclamation of your word and through the living out of your word among your people. Draw many to Christ, and may we find our, indeed our sustenance in Christ alone. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, let's stand again and take our hymn books and turn to number 90. God will take care of you. Be not dismayed, whate'er be tied, God will take care of you. He cares for those who take refuge in him.
church. What a beautiful hymn. We, um, during our men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, we're um, going through uh, the fundamentals of the faith, and we're on lesson three, which is um, the character and attributes of God. And I think it was line three in that hymn, maybe line two, but uh, towards the end it said, O thou who changest not, abide with me. When you look at and think on the character and attributes of God, you can spend a lot of time on each one of them. Uh, but I do love that our God is unchanging. Um, ask anyone who knows me, and I like familiar things. I, I get uncomfortable when things change. I like to go to the same restaurant and order the same things. And um, there's a great comfort in knowing that all that we learn of God in his word, that's it. When we read a truth, that truth is eternal. He'll never change that about himself. He'll never change his promises to us. This morning I'll be read, uh, reading Psalm 35. Uh, in your pew Bible, that's on page 464 and 465 in the English Standard Version. I did uh, quickly want to read the uh, introductory note from the MacArthur Study Bible on this psalm just to give us the context before we work through it. Psalm 35 is an individual lament. Its context of literal and legal warfare suggests a scenario of the theocratic king being accused and about to be attacked by a foreign power with whom he had previously entered into a covenant. David presents his case before the divine judge, moving from a complaint about the situation to prayer about the situation and finally when the Lord would just, justly respond to the situation, praise for his righteous intervention. So we see three cycles of exasperation and expectation in Psalm 35, and that conveys the psalmist's prayers about his opponents to God. We do see a great example of how to work through an issue um, that we're having in, in the model that, that David gave us was uh, we're human, so we're going to start by complaining about the situation. But we should quickly remember to move to prayer about the situation and have faith in that God that never changes, that he will be the divine judge, and he will justly re respond to that situation. And we should move to praise for his inevitable intervention. Read along with me in Psalm 35. This is entitled, Great is the Lord. Of David, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. 
let him fall into it, to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I do not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, you are great. You have shown your greatness amongst us to us individually, and to us as a people. I praise you this morning that we still have a place to gather freely and worship your name, that you have preserved for us and continue to do so, your word, which is the lamp to our path. Lord, as we study your, your word this morning, Father, we ask your help. We ask that we would abide as branches in the vine, that we would seek always to abide in the vine, and that that you would prune those that bear fruit, that we might bear more fruit, that that fruit would show the love of Christ and the power of the Spirit to the world, this, this world that hates the vine and hates the branches because they are in the vine. Lord, I do pray for us here that we would go into the world that hates you and remember to put our lamp on the stand and not under the basket.
that we would shine the light of Christ wherever we go. And though they hate Christ, they would confess him as Lord. We know that every tongue shall confess Christ as Lord. And we pray for as many as you would will to confess it in redemption and not in damnation. Lord, you're just and righteous. Your will be done amongst us. Amen.
Amen. What a great message and song. Thank you, Nelson family. Indeed, I hope that is your prayer, to live your life to the glory of God. That is to demonstrate the beauty of who he is working through your life. What a great testimony in song and a good prayer for each of us on a daily basis. Let's look in his word today at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And thanks, Isaac, and your prayer for introducing really what we're dealing with here in John 15. We've gotten to the section of verse 18, which is kind of unique, in which Jesus explains to his disciples that the world hates you. This if the world hates you that's mentioned in verse 18 is, as I mentioned last week, is first class conditional clause. It, it really can be thought of as when. It isn't that every single moment of the day, but there will certainly be times in which it is expressed more fully. And so when that happens, recognize that in reality, the world, the system that we're in, the culture, ultimately hates Christ. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's going to be manifested in various degrees. Some, like the apostles, will actually be persecuted to death. Others may receive verbal hatred at various points in between. But Jesus is making it clear to his disciples before the hatred of the world is expressed to him in the crucifixion the next day that the world does hate them and for them to prepare for it so that indeed they would not be blindsided when it does happen. Jesus prepared his disciples and it is recorded in God's word to prepare his disciples not just then but even now. If you knew that a disaster is coming, some sort of natural disaster, if you knew for sure, I suppose that most of us would prepare. I mean, if you knew a tornado was coming, now that I've experienced one firsthand a little bit, I know a little bit more about it, as he can shake it as that. It's quite a devastating time. And maybe in preparation for it, you in our day, you might get a generator, emergency radio, storable provisions and such, or or at least know some, know some good people who's got some equipment you can borrow. In any case, <clears throat> we're not always fully prepared for these events because the uncertainty of those kinds of natural disasters. Remember when I moved into the house that I'm in now 20 years ago, there, there was actually a tornado came through didn't hit my immediate neighborhood, but hit the one right next to it. Could have gotten us just as much. I got up early Saturday morning and rode out and thought everything was fine and noticed some trees down in other people's neighborhood. 
didn't do much to my home. Ten years ago, something else happened a little further down the way, somewhere in that range where at Aunt Appleson Way, and um, did quite devastation, but didn't touch mine. And then this last year, well, we got a little taste of it. Um, in any case, there's a certain difference brought about because the chances of it happening to us is pretty low. Chances of it happening again is, is pretty low. But in the text here in our scripture, Jesus is assuring his disciples that this is not just a possibility, but it is a certainty. It will come, and you should be prepared for it. Now, the answer in preparation, the big preparation, not only to be aware that indeed this could very well come, at various degrees, it certainly will come. But to prepare for it, he says that verse 17 in chapter 15, he says these things, I'm, I'm telling you up to this point as he makes a transition, so that you will love one another. That is, the body of Christ will need to truly be engaged with, no, with <coughs> one another, <coughs> exercising these various one another commands that he has given, wrapped up in a single word love, to, to really develop that kind of relationship within the body of Christ, so that should it come, and when it comes, that is persecution, the body of Christ will be able to minister to one another because the world's not going to minister to you. The church will need to minister to one another when persecution strikes because that persecution may come in various forms, as I've mentioned, and for some, they may very well lose their livelihood because of it. It, it did occur to these disciples now, oftentimes, when some sort of persecution comes along, perhaps some might think that, well, it came because I did something wrong. Now, there may be some things you contributed to antagonize or annoy people. I understand that. But ultimately, what, he's, what Christ is teaching his disciples, that persecution is going to come, not necessarily due to your actions and, and your attitudes, it is because they hate Christ. They hate Christ, verse 25 note, without a cause. And I hope you picked that up also in that psalm as Isaac read it this morning, that same idea. The ungodly hates the godly without a cause. There is no real ultimate cause other than they hate God and specifically Jesus Christ. He says, verse 18, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. They're not hating you because you're judgmental, critical of what they're doing. Come across in a condescending way. And again, I think we can all work to present things in, in better ways, but ultimately, it doesn't matter how you package it together, there could be no better delivery of the truth than that by Jesus Christ, and they hated him. That the next night, they will actually torture him 
to death on a cross. The world hated the perfect man without a cause. So Jesus teaches his disciples so that they would not be discouraged should they have similar persecution. And this persecution, I hope you understand now why it comes. It, become, it comes because you are in union with Christ. You're not only identified in Christ, but you're adopted by him. A Christian is said to be one with Christ. What is that characteristic of that union with Christ? Well, what is it that causes this division? Last week, and we gleaned this from our text, that is the teaching of Christ to his disciples, that verse 19, he said, you, you are not of this world. That phraseology, you're not of the world. If you were of the world, then the world would love you. That is, there is a distinction between those that are brought in Christ that they are distinct from the world and cannot be identified as being one with the world, that is the culture, the world system, whatever that might be, wherever you might find yourself, there is a distinction. Just as Christ was distinct from the world, those that are in Christ are distinct from the world, and therefore they are not loved. Instead, they are hated. The world may love you in certain circumstances, in certain situations. They may praise you with hosannas on Sunday, but by the end of the week, I assure you, they will shout out, crucify him, crucify him. And we have seen that, and we will see that unfold here in the very life of Christ. Well, this morning we'll continue on and look at the second reason why the world hates Christ, and therefore those that are in Christ. The first is that they are not of the world. And second, I hope you'll note in our text, because specifically Christ chooses those that are in him out of the world. Let's read it in text, and we'll read it through the end of the chapter, although we'll focus mostly on verse 18 this morning. John 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, that's the phrase, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. That is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ in the fullness of his expression. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit whose work is accomplished. But, back to our text, now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause, and indeed they did. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Let us pray. Indeed, Father, I pray the truth will permeate our heart to give us great courage and comfort in times of persecution. May we cling to Christ and may these truths enable us to overcome through Christ alone. I pray in his name. Amen. If you're following along, if you remember from last week, I was trying to emphasize specifically why Christ said that this persecution will come. And as we talked about last week, persecution comes because Christians are not, note this, of the world, as the text said. And that is, Christians then are counterculture. It's not just that we're going to try to do so, they just are. And if you follow Christ, you're, you're going to walk in a different direction than everyone else is walking. Everyone else is going this way, everyone else is doing that, and some of what they do may be perfectly fine and acceptable, but be assured of this, examine carefully where you step, because most of the world system, the culture, is going to walk in the wrong direction. That's why you need to follow Christ and not the culture. Everyone's doing it isn't a good reason to do it. Follow Christ. Well, doing so then is going to bring out some sort of natural antagonism and you should expect it. Jesus taught in the Gospels this antagonism will come about not only in the culture, but it may very well come out about in your family because you, you have certain distinctions about you. Your primary goal is to glorify God. Follow him, Christ. The second reason, as I alluded to here, and note the phraseology in verse 19, it's not only that you're not of the world, but there is a specific reason you're not of the world. It's just that you haven't sat there and thought about the world and system and said and calculated in your mind, said, well, this doesn't lead anywhere, which it doesn't. I mean, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul, his soul right? That's for sure. But it's beyond that. There is a dynamic work here by God, specifically, where those that follow Christ, note the distinction, it is that Jesus Christ himself has chosen you out of the world. That's why you're not of the world, is because Christ chose you out of the world. Verse 19, and he says then, therefore, 
the world has hated you. They hate you because you're not of the world. It's because of Christ's choice of those that would follow him and indeed be his disciple. Jesus chooses his disciples, and that's important for those who follow him to know. It can be a hard and difficult truth for many people. And because of it, many will hate you because of that. Jesus chooses his disciples, and I'll look at it from three perspectives. One is certainly with, for salvation, that is to change their soul, to change the, their heart, to change their mind. Secondly, he chooses for sanctification, that is to set them apart, to make them holy, to work in their life a righteousness that is demonstrated in their life, and finally, for service. Let's think of this first concept. He chose for salvation, that is, to go from death unto life. In verse 16 of chapter 15, he specifically reminds his disciples of this. Remember, a disciple means a follower. The word Christian soon replaced the word disciple because Christian just simply means little Christ. It's the same concept that whether you call yourself a Christian or a disciple of Christ, you are indeed a follower of Christ, someone who certainly chooses Christ in their life, but Christ reminds them of his priority in this choosing, if you will. Look at verse 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And in fact, that is what is important. I say it a different way sometimes from taken from John. And I forgot the exact verse. You can look it up. It's the last verse of John chapter 2, somewhere around 29, whatever, where many people said that they believed in Christ. They saw what he was doing, of course, and they started following him. Why not? And they confessed that they believed in him. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in their heart. And so it's more important, beloved, to simply ask this question. Not so much, do you believe in Jesus? But does Jesus believe in you? And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, it is my divine choice of you. I chose you. He chose his disciples. He calls them then and calls them now to follow him. He's not suggesting that you don't make a choice to follow him. Of course you do. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's fine. But as long as you know that he initiates the calling. John would explain it this way in his epistle. He, we love Christ because he first, what? Loved us. We follow Christ then because it is a specific calling of Christ on the life of all who will follow him to come, pick up your cross, and follow me. In the upper room, he makes a clear distinction in this calling. There is a sense in which everyone is called to follow Christ, and I will certainly preach that. I will beg and plead for people to follow Christ, to come. This is a general call. But those who actually do respond 
in what we call faith, that is belief, trust, choosing, respond to what theologians call the effectual call. It's a beyond just a general statement, all men must repent, all men must believe, but those who do, do so because of Christ's initiative in this calling, his effectual call. In chapter 13, I'll read it for you. He tells his disciples in this upper room, this is during the time when he's washing their feet, he's saying, if, if you do these things, and remember, remember I've said how all of this, these themes kind of wind around. He, he goes back to them time and time again in his teaching, sort of like building this beautiful tapestry in which these themes are intertwined and he goes back to them from a different angle all the time and he calls his disciples to to be obedient and he says, blessed are you if you do them. But but he's speaking specifically of those that are obedient sons, that is, that they have had their nature changed, not her just doing external things to conform to Christ, but who from the heart are obedient to the faith He says, I know whom I have chosen. I'm not speaking to all of you, verse 18 of chapter 13. I know whom I have chosen. What? In a specific way. Chosen for salvation. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's talking about Judas, who was part of that general call, who was there in the congregation. He was there right at the table with Christ, but he was not chosen for salvation. Instead, he was left to do his own will and make his own choice, and his own choice is damnation. He chose his disciples who would remain in him, that is, abide in him, in a salvific way. Now, when I say that, this then becomes a hard doctrine for many. And it may sound harsh. But I think, beloved, we're on good ground. And so I invite you to think through it in the text. I won't spend a tremendous amount of time here. But in chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching, this is when the doctrine started getting hard. Back in chapter 6, he begins to tell those who were in this large crowd who saw the miracles that he had done and performed and wanted to be a part of that. Thousands and thousands came and crowds will come to see something spectacular, something unique. But crowds aren't going to come to follow Christ. Jesus would say in verse 44 of chapter 6 to these folks that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. How? They came. They were a big crowd. He's not talking about coming to the general call, if you will, of the community to see what's happening. He's saying someone who genuinely has their heart changed salvifically. Those who have their heart changed are then said to be 
raise up with him on the last day. That is the promise. It's a distinction of those who came. This group that would come would be raised to newness of life on the last day. They will be taught by God. This is a hard doctrine. And he goes on and, and tells them and continually tells them and tells them to then live on Christ, eat his flesh, drink his blood. That is, make Christ everything in your life. Make them, him the priority of your life. Follow him to even death. And that's a hard teaching. It's so hard, verse 66, that many of his disciples, that is his followers, who were not genuinely drawn by the Father, many of those turned back and no longer walked with him. Hard doctrine. Doesn't fit with the world mindset and the culture. And so they walked away. And Jesus gives the twelve an opportunity. You want to go too? And Peter's answer is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the confession of somebody that is truly coming to Christ. There is no other source. There is no other way. There is no other truth. And there is no other life. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the Holy One of God. And it is because of Christ's choice. In verse 70 says, I, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. That is, one of you was not chosen salvifically. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of those in that group that was going to betray him. Jesus knew all along. So the crowd dispersed over this hard doctrine that Jesus teaches. He goes on and he teaches religious leaders in chapter 8, and they respond the same way. They want to kill him, 859. This is a difficult doctrine for many, and many do struggle in trying to understand this concept of Christ choosing those who would follow him salvifically to salvation. But it is a very humbling teaching. It is a very securing teaching, a profound, a reassuring teaching that it is indeed the love of God who chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 says. It is the love of Christ that was granted you not by accident, but by his very design. We call it the very decree of God. It is a very humbling doctrine. And I said, I was talking to someone else the other day, of why this is so very securing. 
It isn't that, I know we call people to, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but when they do, then they come to recognize that it is Christ who has chosen them. And Christ will never unchoose them. <laughs> It'd be dependent on you. Maybe you make a good choice today, and then maybe you make a different choice tomorrow. This is why he will lose none of his. He will raise them all up on the last day. Why? It doesn't depend on your faith and your faithfulness. It depends on Christ's. He will never deny himself. He doesn't make a choice and then decide to do something different. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the securing concept of this choice that Christ has made in salvation. You can sing with the saints of old, John Newton, who sang about amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. How do blind eyes see? How do wretches receive righteousness? It is through the work of Jesus Christ. From our perspective, and I understand when someone first comes to Christ, how this can be difficult to understand because you hear the gospel you do repent and you do believe. It is really your belief. It is really your repentance. And that is what we call people to do. Choose Christ. Believe in Christ. But that only explains the what. The what must you do to be saved. It doesn't explain the why. Why you did it and why someone else didn't. Why Peter saw Christ as the Holy One of God, and why Judas betrayed him. Why is because of Christ, and Christ alone. He is the reason for life. And then it redounds into great praise for him, for his Amazing grace. Grace simply means a gift. It is a gift of Christ. It isn't a gift, by the way, predicated on, on you unwrapping it and looking inside. No, no, no. This is a gift of life. That is, it goes from death to life. It goes from blindness to sight. It goes from deafness to hearing. All of a sudden, now these very words that you read make sense. There's some substance and significance to it. Now, all of a sudden, there's this, a sentiments are changed. There is a, a desire to constantly repent and follow Christ. An inward conviction that, that doesn't come from outward conformity as the primary motive. Faith is really your belief. But it is the breath of life. Illustration? Infants breathe. Newborns breathe. They breathe. Why? Well, because they've got some muscles that press in on some lungs and 
rhythmically exhale and inhale. Is that what it is? Because they have blood flowing around in their body and a, and a muscle that pumps it around, is it? Because they have a brain with some electrical impulses that do this or that. You could hook all of that up to a machine and that doesn't bring about life. They use a word, at least I think they use a word about people being brain dead, right? They have certain functions, but there's no what? Life. There is a mystery to that. We breathe, beloved, ultimately because of life. Oh, we breathe, and we must breathe. It is really our breath, and it really has to happen. But why does it happen? Because you are alive. And that analogy applies spiritually. The reason you have faith is because you are made alive in Christ. Faith, then, is a response to life. Why is this doctrine, then, so hated? Why would Jesus bring this up? They hate you because I chose you. That's what I'm saying about choosing, that Christ does pluck wretches out of the wretchedness of humanity and changes them. But why would this then be so hated? I think, I don't know for sure, I have thought about it. But I do think, and this part, I could be wrong, so you can correct me or just tune out for a moment if you wish. I think part of this reason why this doctrine of divine election is so hated because it, it isn't something that we would have come up with in our own human mind. In our human thinking, everything needs to be about an equal opportunity. And beyond that, today it needs to be about equal opportunity outcome all the time. That's, that's the new thing. Equal opportunity and equal outcome and then everything will be fine. I can assure you this, the scripture makes it clear. If God were fair in that regard, we would all be justly condemned. Because everyone has been given an equal opportunity and everyone has failed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone would get an equal outcome and that outcome would be damnation. Beloved, you don't want fairness. You want grace. You want mercy. You want the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. So this is the gospel that we, we preach. We, we preach mercy to all. And we beckon all come and receive. We hear the words of Christ just a few chapters ago at the feast to the tabernacles to the whole community there. When he, when he points to himself on the last day of the feast and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
And whoever believes in me and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. An abundant promise. But it, it's conditioned on, on those that thirst. Well, dead men don't thirst. You have to be made alive. And if you're thirsty for Christ, come and take a drink. If you see him as glorious, worship him. If you hear his words, heed his words. Have faith. Believe on Christ. These words that Christ called out then, as I mentioned before, it's no different in chapter 7 as chapter 6 and chapter 8. It's all the same. There's great division. That's the response. Go preach this gospel out there and you will find persecution. People will say, what a narrow way. That's your truth. I have mine. I'm living okay on my own. Preach the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Oh, and you will find great persecution. In fact, 743 simply states this, there was a division among him over the people. That's the dividing line. Preach Christ. Some believed, others did not. Some wanted him arrested. Some were amazed at what he said, truly. Some did thirst and some did drink. It brought about a clear division among the people. This conflict is not new, it's old. Turn to, uh, you can hold your finger here and turn to 1 John chapter 3. This is an epistle the same writer, John, the apostle, wrote. 1 John chapter 3. And here he brings up this conflict between those that are chosen of God and those that are not. And the division that it causes. He's going to mention Cain and Abel. Paul talks about Jacob and Esau. And in the Old Testament it talked a lot about Egypt and Israel. If you're in 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 11. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Interesting where he got that from, right? He's exhorting his congregation in the same way that Christ did, and particularly in this time of division that's going to come along. And he said we should not be, verse 12, like Cain. He was of the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the one who walks according to the course of this world in the sons of disobedience. That's who he is. The world. He murdered his brother. We know that. And the question is why? He asks it. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do you see the division One was of the world and one was not. They're distinctive. And then he says, and he's preaching the same thing Christ had taught him to his congregation, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world system, of course it does. Why? We know we've passed out of death into life because we love our brothers And whoever does not love abides 
in death. God's unmerited favor hardens those who are in rebellion against him. They persecuted Christ. They will persecute you. Because of the salvation granted to you in Christ, because Christ chose you to life. The second reason, back in our text in John 15, in verse 19, the emphasis is first, that he chose. Second, this choice results in what I would term as not only salvation, but this concept of sanctification. And let me just add, sanctification is part of salvation. They, don't, they go hand in hand. Oftentimes, however, when we look at sanctification, we look at it from this life perspective. Ultimately, sanctification results in what we call glorification. That is, all that are saved in Christ are made perfectly holy in him and will stand in perfection in eternity. This side, this side of eternity, however, there is a working out of a change of heart in the life of the believer by which we call sanctification. The world hates because they're not only chosen to salvation, but also out of the world. All Christians were of the world and in the world, and Christ calls them out. This then creates a moral division, and that's the problem. They hate you because of morality. It isn't because you're high, holy, and righteous in all your practices. It is that you affirm those things that are good, lovely, and true. You affirm Christ. That creates a division. You're no longer characterized by the sinful practices because even when you commit some of those, you are convicted at heart and repent and pursue a different path. Here at length, I think we should turn to some theology on it from Paul to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll look at several verses there. Those that are chosen in Christ for salvation are also chosen out of the world. That is, they are sanctified in Christ. This creates a moral distinction between the world and, and those that are in Christ. That creates a separation which causes a rift. And they hate those that pursue Christ because they are guilty. They're guilty before God, and they can do nothing with their guilt other than push it away, hide it, redefine it, pretend it doesn't occur, ignore it, call it something else. But they know that they're guilty before God, and your pursuit of Christ reminds them every day of their guilt. They may not say it that way, but I assure you it is moral. It's not because somebody says something in, in an unkind way that they perceive and, and that. It is, a, it is fundamentally a moral problem. Paul would tell the church at, at Corinth that the unrighteous, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about a category of the world. This is a different way to discuss them, whether you call them the sons of disobedience, the unrighteous, that is, someone whose pattern of life is characterized by unrighteousness. That is, their their desire is not to glorify God in their members. It is to pursue themselves, Satan, the pattern of the world, therefore they're unrighteous. And guess what? They're not going to heaven. They're not going to be with God. And he then expands on that. Well, what would those people be like? Don't be deceived. Neither, and this isn't all in the list, this is an example, sexually immoral. That is, any kind of sex outside of marriage is immoral. The marriage bed has been designed by God. It is moral. That's what it's for. Anything outside of that, if that characterizes your life, you're not going to heaven. You can repent, and we call you to repent now. But if that characterizes your life, sorry. Nor idolaters. That is who isn't just worshiping some little object or whatever and bowing down to it. It may be a lot of things in your life which you treasure more than God. Idolaters. Adulterers. Nor, here's one, men who practice homosexuality. Go preach that in Washington, D.C. and see what happens. You'll, you'll find out soon that uh, godly people do experience persecution. It's hard for me to believe that the church, and by the way, I warn you, they're continually adopting some of the culture of the world. This, this, this whole movement into, which it's not even mentioned here, but you could, this whole bizarre concept of of um, transgenderism. I said, where in the world did that come from? <laughs> what, what small minority of people that have mental issues are we talking about? Why has this all of a sudden become a big thing? I, I, I just, and I, for, I don't post much stuff because I just don't want to create a storm. I'm not afraid of anything. I just don't want to create and just overt annoyances. I'd rather just spend time preaching Christ, but I did see a good article that someone wrote about in eight, it was titled something that's like 880 words Biden destroys women. You know what they're talking about? This Equality Act that he promised to put into place. And it's amazing to me that big evangelical organizations like the Gospel Coalition and others would all of a sudden write all these articles of how we, can, we need to vote to stop this and all that. You had a chance and you supported this. You wanted the wind and you're going to get the whirlwind. This whole movement is not about a few deranged people that are insane. This is about Satan and the world system. And I tell you what they want to corrupt. They want to ruin young women. This law puts into place an opportunity for young women at schools to, to go behind their parents' backs and take drugs in their body to, to ruin their ability to have children. 
And somebody responded to me on that and said, well, you're just um, a fear monger. <laughs> I didn't bother responding. Someone else responded. I didn't bother. I said, okay. I hope that's all it is. But I don't think it is. I think they have an agenda. And they destroy the family. And one way you do it is you, you destroy women. I mean, what, what's the point of all this work of even these secular feminist groups to build up all these Title IX programs, all these women's programs, and now a man could just say, I'm a woman, and, and go join their uh, athletic enterprise and win. How insane is that? Now, if it was my daughter, I'd probably be in jail by now, but anyway, um, I'd be really upset. But you know, that's not the biggest thing. There's that, That's bad. It's awful. But the worst part about it is, you understand, these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what's really... That's what's really bad about it. These people don't recognize. They're, they're, they're destroying themselves. They're destroying the culture. They're destroying society. All that's bad. But what's worse is, is they, they are, they're outside of the kingdom of God. They're going to, to, to live in eternal judgment. And part of that judgment, part of that wrath being displayed, as Paul would describe in Romans chapter 1, is God allowing them to do insane things. Why would you destroy your children? Why would you destroy the family? Why would you destroy the future of your culture? God will give you over to a reprobate mind. That means an insane mind. Thieves are listed here, verse 10. The greedy, drunkards, revival, revilers, and swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a lot longer. This is just representative of it. But notice verse 11. And such were some of you. See, it isn't that we're just better than those people that are practicing all those things. That's who we were. We may not have manifested them all in the same way, but ultimately murderers at heart, adulterers at heart, swindlers at heart. This is the natural inclination of man. That's why you give yourself an equal opportunity. The equal outcome is going to be damnation. There has to be an intervention of sorts. Can I tell you that intervention? It is Jesus Christ. And, and beloved, I hope you respond not in just intellectual understanding of the theological concept of his election, but how, how great and cherishing this is to recognize that this is who I, who I was. This is who I, I would be if it wasn't for God. He snatched me out of this. Out of the, what do you call it? Out of the world. He snatched you out of the world. What does that look like? Do you see it in verse 11? You were washed. All of that filth taken off. You were sanctified. 
Sanctified means to be set apart, to made, be made holy. You were then justified. Justified then means that legal declaration of, do you hear it? Do you hear it coming from the throne of God? Not guilty. Satan says, oh, but you see, this is an unwashed person. This person is, is dirty. Oh, he's been washed. He's been set apart. He's been sanctified. Yeah, but do you know what he, what he did, what he thought about? And Christ says, I paid it all. It is the blood of Christ by which you're washed in. It is the word of Christ by which you're sanctified in. It is through Christ then that you are declared as he stands both as judge and jury. And he says, not guilty. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. But can I assure you, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you are guilty as charged. This is a dynamic work of Christ. It is justified how? Do you see a text in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the only one. It is only one name. It is Christ. And notice how he puts in here, by the Spirit of our God. That is, it is a dynamic work by the Holy Spirit of God. It isn't about... You getting yourself somehow washed of all your wrong. It isn't somehow you setting yourself apart from all that is wrong. It isn't about you then fulfilling some requirements that are put out there for you to achieve justification. This is a dynamic work through the Holy Spirit. How does it come about? I'll tell you, there's a certain mystery to it. I agree. And it took me a long time to settle it in my mind, just the way I think about things. I always want things to calculate straight forward. Step one, step two, step three, and that's how I work in my mind. But this is beyond my mind. To recognize this is a supernatural dynamic work. So how does it go about? I don't know. We just preach Christ and Him crucified and call people to repent and believe. And guess what? They will. And then they'll be washed. Then they'll be set apart, sanctified, declared righteous forever. And be made members of Christ. I'll need to finish, and I'll finish here. But so that you don't get lost in the train of thoughts here, Paul, in this case, then is talking about his status before Christ and then he says, well, you know, I can do whatever I want, verse 12, but they're not always helpful. And this phraseology, verse 13, the food for the stomach and stomach for food, it's just that um, the, the idea is, hey, look, you know, I'm just doing what comes naturally. That's just a different way of expressing it. You know, uh, that, that's the mentality of the world. Well, kids are just going to get, you know, involved in stuff, so that's just part of the world. No, it isn't. God will destroy both one and the other. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord the body. By the way, you can put in there, it isn't just the focus on sexual immorality, that is one. You can put in, it isn't made for idolatry. It isn't made for adultery. It, it isn't made for homosexuality. It isn't made for theft. It isn't made to be proud. It isn't made to be greedy. It isn't made to be drunkards, right? He's just using that as an example. It is made for, you have been created for God in Christ Jesus. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? That's why you're going to be persecuted, because you're a member of Christ. You're going to be persecuted because you're not going along with the flow of the world. There is a distinction. Your life is not characterized by those that inherit the kingdom of God. It isn't the fact that you get those things out of your life. It's that somehow justifies you, sanctifies you, and washes you. Not at all. It is all because of Christ. He has made you a new creature in Christ. And now you're a, a member of Christ. And a different analogy he puts in verse 19. You, uh, your, your body then becomes a temple of what? The Holy Spirit who Jesus taught in the, our chapter in John 15. It is the helper who is going to come and then he will dwell with the Christian in their life. Therefore, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And then the command to those that are in Christ is to simply do what? Glorify God in your body and all you do because of his choice of you for salvation his choice of you to take you out of the wretchedness of this world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come to you thankful for your word, which is beyond our understanding. I do pray through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you will call many to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who find guilt when they measure their actions, I pray that they will unload all of that on Christ even now. That we may indeed be by your Spirit washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Beloved, take a moment privately where you're at to think and reflect on these things. And we'll close in just a moment. Take a moment privately to think and respond to Christ alone. Father, I pray that indeed you will remind each one of us that we are indeed in Christ. We are not of the world. We're not of the world because Christ is not of the world.
And I pray along with Christ who's praying right now for your beloved that you will sanctify us in your truth. Your word indeed is truth. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Let's all stand and turn to 154 in our hymnals. What a friend we have in Jesus, 154. Father, we're indeed thankful for all the, the many blessings you've given us, Lord, and for this opportunity we're about to partake of now to, to gather together and to fellowship around the table, and for all the food that's been prepared, Lord, we just pray that you would bless everyone who's prepared and bless those who partake of it and bless it to our bodies. And Father, we pray now that every soul here would bless the Lord all the days of their life with all that is within them. May you bless the holy name. May you never forget the benefits of him who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, and redeems your life from the pit. May the Lord satisfy your hearts with good things and crown your life with his steadfast love and tender mercies forever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.